Romans, the letter that changed the world. Why religion can't save mankind. We had baptism scheduled and it just didn't pan out. People away and whatnot. So why religion can't save mankind. We're in Romans 7. We're up to part 15. So you can kind of sort out in your own thinking how long it's going to take to get through this. Romans 7 is a tricky chapter of Scripture. We read the first six verses last Sunday night. That's online. You can get the notes and, or the video, whatever you want, if you've missed something and you're trying to keep up. So tonight, Romans 7, verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. That doesn't mean Paul didn't covet before the law, but without, without the, the law, without that concept, an explanation, and a law about covetousness, how would you explain what you're feeling? The draw towards someone else's material good. How do you identify it? How do you label it? That's what he's, that's what he's saying. Verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. He doesn't mean he wasn't a sinner. But apart from the law, he has, he has no way of reckoning sin. Verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law. Things didn't bother him. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. This is a pretty complex paragraph, isn't it? Verse 10. The very commandment that promised life. You read the giving of the law, even in the Old Covenant. You do this and your family will be blessed and your home will be blessed. It, all these wonderful promises for just keeping the law of God. The very commandment that promised life, it proved death to me. Why, Paul? Well, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. And through it, killed me. He's still alive. He's talking about spiritually inside. Verse 12. So the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. So that's not the problem. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Because it kind of sounds like that's what he said. By no means. The issue wasn't the law. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. For through the commandment, and sorry, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Sinful beyond measure. 
I think what he, what he means is this. Uh, without the law of God, my only measurement for sin is whether it's, uh, whether it's something my conscience will leave me feeling comfortable about or, or whether it's something that will be socially acceptable to the peer group that I'm with. That's how I would measure right and wrong. And we all know that people have different standards. You can have a group over here that thinks something's perfectly all right. Everything from abortion to same-sex marriage to, to all sorts of things. And a group over here that thinks those things are terrible. Now, without the law, who, who, who's right? That, that, that's his point. But when the commandment's there, when God speaks and I've got it revealed and I see what God says, well then... That sin becomes sinful beyond measure. It's, it's beyond my own opinion, my, beyond my own assessment of things. There's a standard out there and a really holy, just God. And so all of us can see how our actions measure up. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. Sold under sin. Even that image, eh? Sold under sin. You, you get a picture of the slavery aspect. Sold under sin. Let me start here before we get right into the text. Studying Paul and studying a text like this is a really good way to learn to learn how to interface with biblical truth. How to relate to it. How to react to it. In other words, it doesn't just teach you this text. It teaches you how to approach all texts in Scripture. You'll you'll notice the way he starts out. Take tonight's text. What then shall we say, verse 7? That the law is sin, question mark? This is a great way to learn to relate to the Scriptures. Paul, he kind of engages himself. He asks questions. Each statement of God's truth is used to learn more. He leapfrogs into another idea and another idea and another idea. He applies what he knows to issues about which he still has questions. I don't know if you've noticed it, but you can see Paul doing that over and over again. He's not the only one either, Paul. Let me just remind you of a bit of where we've been. Six one. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in, continue in sin that grace may abound? Do you see what he's doing? Is that how this plays out? Is that how this truth works? Or 6.15, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Or 7 verse 7, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? Or 7.13, did that which is good then bring death to me? This is a marvelous way to deeply engage the mind in scriptural truth. The the kind of reasoning that links things together so that a balance is maintained. Do you see what Paul does when he's asking those questions? What he's doing is he's saying, I want to sniff out wrong conclusions. I want to sniff out things that people might think God is saying, but he really isn't saying that. So it's, a, it's an antidote to carelessness in interpreting the Scriptures. We're smart enough to do this. 
just as an example, Paul has just said some very important things about the law. Last Sunday night's text, the first six verses of chapter 7. I mean, the whole passage celebrates our release from the law. We have died to the law in Christ Jesus. In in verse 5 of chapter 7, Paul said that our sinful passions were aroused by the law. So, So one could easily just say, well, very well, what a terrible thing the law is. Look at all the pain, look at all the bondage it's caused. Fooey on the law. And Paul knows that our minds can go there, and that's why he, he picks it up right where he picks it up in verse 7. So what are we saying? Is the law sin? No, no, by no means. That's not it. That's not what I'm saying. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would, have, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So no, that's what Paul's saying. There's nothing wrong with the law. The problem isn't with the law. The problem's here. You have the same one. The problem is with me. And, and this is the issue Paul wants to unfold now in today's text. Why? Why does a good, holy, righteous law of God, why does it affect me so badly? Okay, that's the issue. It's not that the law is bad. Why does it have this effect on me and on you? And if you say, well, it doesn't have that effect on me, I hope by the time we're done, especially in the closing few minutes, I want to show you that it it does have that effect on everybody. Point number one. Paul wants to explain again exactly why the law was given in the first place. Here's some of the things that our text says the law does. Let me just make it some bullet points. First, it says it reveals sin. That's in 7-7. The first part of the seventh verse of chapter 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. He doesn't say experience sin. I wouldn't have been able to define it. I couldn't see exactly where I had missed the mark without the law. I I mean, I think there's something important to note here. When, When Paul says without the law he would not have known sin, he doesn't mean he would have no concept of right and wrong. We know that, by the way, Because you go back to Romans chapter 2 where where he already argued that everyone, everyone is born with this God-given sense of moral oughtness. Right at the core of his being. Paul's already said that. So he can't mean, he can't mean that he wouldn't have known sin. He can't mean that he would have no concept of right or wrong. What he does mean is, He wouldn't have understood what sin really is without the law of God in terms of its relation to God. So so through the law, Paul came to understand sin not just as some... And here, this is close to home, church, because this is the way our world views sin. It doesn't use that word because once you say sin, it's a theological concept. Sin is evil as it relates to God. That's what makes it sin. And that's why 
it took the law of God so Paul wouldn't view sin as just some kind of personal moral shortcoming. That's the way most in the world today would view it. Not just a sense of failure or incompleteness or lack. Once you start talking about sin against the law, you bring out something different. And here's the different element. Sin is personal rebellion. That's different from failure. Rebellion against God. Rebellion against the, the lawgiver. The absolute. The judge. So, so the law makes sin countable. Official. It makes sin matter more than personal reasons could ever make it matter. Or societal reasons could ever make it matter. Failure may or not may or may not be all that crucial except for your self-esteem but law-breaking counts because laws come from law givers so it's not just subjective anymore it's objective second thing here's what else the law does it defines sin it's similar to the last point, but it's not quite the same. So not only does the law reveal sin as law-breaking, but it also defines sin as a deeply inward problem. The last part of verse 7, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said you shall not covet. So, so when Paul sees the law of God and every claim that it makes on him, he sees that the law, sin isn't just the things that Paul does. Sin is who Paul is on the inside. This is the difference between repentance and apology. Everybody needs to understand this. You can apologize for things you do. Repentance has to do with recognizing who you are. A sinner. That's why you can't just apologize to God. Oh, sorry about that. And so the law points out this inward problem of which Paul uses covetousness just as one example. He could have used pride. He could have used arrogance. He could have used self-justification. A love for prominence. The desire to be right all the time. The need to win all the arguments. Putting yourself above others. The, the law revealed this, that in here, in Paul, there was something not right. As a zealously trained Pharisee, boy, Paul knew all sorts of laws. About 613 of them. And here's the important point. None of those pharisaical regulations, none of those laws left Paul feeling guilty as a sinner. We know that because he says so. Philippians 3, 4 to 6. Here's what he said about his capacity to keep all these man-made regulations. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Listen, as to righteousness under the law, he said, I was blameless. That's quite a comment. 
blameless. Kept them all. And then the law of God came and said, in here, Paul, there's something not right. If all there is to holiness is external issues, then religion is all that's needed for salvation. But after keeping all these external regulations, Paul found the law of God revealing something about his own nature. And it spoke to him about his heart. And it revealed not just Paul's deeds, but Paul's desires, his motives, his loves. Oh, how we desperately need the law of God to reveal the truth about ourselves. If our problem, if my problem is, I just don't understand my potential, then Oprah can save me. If all I need is just a little more instruction to save the world, then our educators can save us. But... Once we dare to think the unthinkable, once we dare to speak the unspeakable, once we admit there's something deeply wicked in our own souls, something we can't fix without outside help, then I need Jesus. And you witness this, church. You know what I'm talking about. That's what the world hates about the gospel. The world does not hate the church for saying, love one another. The reason our world uses Jesus Christ as curse words rather than any other religious leader who has ever lived is because only Jesus professes to be the Savior of sinners. And we hate that. The world will never forgive Jesus for saying that. The third thing the law does, Paul says it provokes sin. These are complicated verses, and I'm hoping to find a simple way of illustrating it to you. It provokes sin. Look at verses 8 through 11. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was alive once apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died and, and so the, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, it deceived me, and through it, through the law, it killed me. Now that's Paul's uh, complicated explanation of a, a brief, shocking sentence that he blurted out back in 520 where he said now the law came in to increase the trespass and that's all he said at that point and because he knows that might lead people to think sin somehow comes from the law paul wants to make himself a little bit more clear that the problem isn't that the law is somehow sinful but verse 8 sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment Produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Okay. How can that be? How can a good 
holy law produce sin? There has to be people in the room right now thinking that question. How does that happen? I mean, don't give me the theology. Like, how, how, does, that, how does that work? Think with me now. If you could travel back to the Garden of Eden, and God creates Adam, then he creates Eve. He places them in the garden to tend and keep the garden. Work, by the way, is not a result of the fall. Work was there before the fall. It becomes labor after the fall. Work is God's will right from the beginning of creation. They're there to tend the garden, and then, and then they look out at this beautiful garden, and as far as you can see in every direction, it's delightful. Okay? And God says, have at it. But there's just one tree. See all these thousands of trees? There's just one. Don't eat the fruit of that tree. Now here's my question. Does that seem like a hard commandment? Anybody? Does that seem like a hard commandment? For crying out loud, one, one lousy tree. Just leave it. Exactly. So, in comes the serpent. Think about this for a minute now. Pretend. What if God had not made any stipulation about one tree, okay? There's the law, right? That's the first law. As far as I can tell, that's the first law in the Bible, right? The very first one. Let's say God had not said that. Let's just say God put them in the garden and said, enjoy, tend the garden, have at it. It's all yours. And that's all he said. Now, here's the money question. How would Satan possibly have tempted Adam and Eve? And the answer is, he couldn't. Right? He could not have tempted them. With what? There, there were no restrictions. There was no potential for disobedience. But once there was a law, you see where I'm going? Once there was a law, there was the possibility of temptation and sin. There's nothing wrong with a commandment. It, but it's the law that births the possibility for rebellion. And that's how a holy, righteous, good command, Paul says, it just produces sin. Because the only point where my flesh is tempted to rebel is where there's actual rebellion. And the only place where the enemy of my soul can come and tempt me is where there's actually been a restriction. Does this not make sense? That's a simple illustration of a very complicated principle that Paul's trying to make clear. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me. And through it killed me. Verse 11, chapter 7. So, the deception comes... At the exact point, the law of God is revealed. 
and, and the deception of sin has always been exactly the same. Since Adam and since Eve to this day, the deception is that we can assert our wills independently and we can succeed. But if you try, if you only try to assert your will against God at the specific point of his will that cramps yours, that's, that's when we do it. When there's something constraining, something confining. That's what the law does. It provokes sin. Okay, we're almost done now. Number two. The conclusion of the matter. So the law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Well, by no means. It was the serpent, it wasn't the law. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh and sold under sin. So there's Paul. He's going to put his conclusion now right up front. Law isn't sinful at all. You might have thought that, but that's not it. The problem isn't with the law of God. It's holy, righteous, and good, verse 12. So 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? It's a fair question. How can something holy, righteous, and good bring death in my own experience? And Paul's answer is that sin and spiritual death aren't to be blamed on the law, but on Sin at work within us. If a, if a guy breaks into a store at night, beats up a sales clerk, steals all the money in the till, and the police catch him and they put him in prison, can he honestly blame the law that he ends up in prison? Is it the law's fault? The law didn't really put the person in prison. His crime put him in prison. The law made the crime official and punishable. The phrase I want to wrap up with, it's tucked right in the middle of verses 13 and 14, where Paul says, It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So somehow, says Paul, the holy, just, good law of God, it makes my sin look sinful beyond measure. He he means the goodness of the law makes my sin just unexplainable, inexcusable. If I rebel, here's how it works. If I rebel against something bad, then I'm a good person. I think that's the way it works. If I rebel against something bad, I'm a good person. I think it's good to be against crime. I think it's good to be against cruelty. I think, you know, the mayor of uh, New York, Bloomberg, making that law that right up until the day before birth, you can abort a baby anytime in New York City. Five minutes before the baby's born. Cut it up. Throw it in the dumpster. I think it's good to rebel against that. (laughs) 
In fact, if someone doesn't rebel, if there isn't anything that rises up against these things, then I would argue that a person is bad, at best, very apathetic. We shouldn't be able to live comfortably without rebelling against bad things. But, if someone rebels against something really good, if someone rebels against something really lovely and precious, then that shows that person is a very bad person. If someone rebels against something absolutely perfect, essential, good, and wonderful, if someone rebels and chafes against that, then he or she is a really bad person indeed. So now, we're getting right to the heart of a revelation of sin. If I rebel against the law of God, the one the psalmist said is perfect, reviving the soul, giving light to the eyes, if I rebel against that, and we do, if we treat the law of God as though it were cow dung, then we only reveal the depths of our sin, and that's what Paul's talking about. The holier the law is, our rebellion against it reveals more truly and accurately the state of our own heart. And that's why, eventually, in Galatians, Paul's going to say what the law is, it's uh, designed to lead us to Christ. It's, it's designed to make us say, something, there is something wrong in here. And I can't fix it. Only Jesus can. And so all of this, you see, he's going to get into wonderful presentations of the gospel, but Paul's pretty thorough. He has that whole seventh chapter that makes you just go, ah, oh, there's just something wrong. Exactly. It's a wonderful thing to stand on the far side of grace and see how it works in our hearts and lives. Let's pray.